You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience here at Conservative Review. This is Daniel Horowitz, scratchy throat and all from all that time out in the snow yesterday. But it's great to be here for an exciting new week. It's Monday. It is January 14th. And we are reinvigorated from the weekend. As much time as I was forced to spend outside. So you have to understand, it hasn't snowed a lot here in the mid-Atlantic region. Just the last couple of years, it's been a been a drought of snow. Um, And my kids, you know, especially the younger two, they've almost never seen it. Because it's been such a drought the last two years, three years really, since we had a a big storm. So we were out there all day. We're playing football in the in the snow, and of course now I have that sore throat. So uh, I'm gonna have to keep my voice in check this week. But you know, you know who got it worse? Fifty miles south in the nation's capital, in D.C. You see, the government is shut down today, but not for fake. The government is shut down for real. Obviously, the last three weeks, three and a half weeks of this so-called government shutdown. Guess what? Guess what? Basically, the equivalent of, what was it again? 8% was shut down. I mean, it's a joke. And nobody noticed. Basically, the shutdown itself has accounted for $325 billion in federal spending. That is, what is that, $325? I'm just trying to do the math here. I mean, that's that's well under 10%. That's like 7% of all spending. $325 billion. And no one cares. Today, there's an even bigger shutdown because of the snow. What a joke. And I think before we start off today getting back to immigration and the border, but I really want to obviously focus today. The main topic is going to be back to the courts. We've spent so much time on the border. It's been a while since we've revisited our discussion on the courts. All of our theses on the courts are being proven right every single day. How the courts are irremediably broken. Our way of viewing the power of the courts is broken. And that includes conservatives and conservative media. They're just as guilty as we're going to talk about today. But I just want to revisit, before we get into that, what I call the ancillary narrative of this three-and-a-half-week stealth shutdown. That's what it is. It's a stealth shutdown. And that's aside from the fact that we've successfully, at least so far, finally sustained a national dialogue over the most important national security threat facing our country, and that's our own border. Glad we're finally doing it. You know, you have these border deniers. They call us climate deniers. Well, they, they are border deniers. But in addition to border denying, you have debt deniers. That's really the other aspect of this. Irrespective of where you are in immigration, And you know what? Irrespective of where you even are on fiscal issues. I know we have some liberal uh, listeners who who tune in occasionally, and, and I'm thankful for that. I'd like to ask you guys this. Look, you guys want bigger government. I get it. But I think we all have to agree that we face a crisis, right? Just this year alone, we are going to blow through a trillion dollar debt. Trillion dollar deficit. That's another thing. A lot of the numbers we use, we use CBO numbers, but every year those numbers keep going up. So they project in 10 years, you know, there'll be this and this much debt, debt to GDP, deficits, spending. The numbers keep going up every year on the projections. So we're seeing that. In other words, I think last year they were predicting a 900. $50 billion deficit. 
that's going to be a lot more. So, you know, we, we have had what three full months of this fiscal year, October, November, December, and we're already up to uh, roughly 330 billion in deficits. Now, I don't know if that means we're necessarily going to get to 1.4, 1.5 trillion, but it's definitely going to be more than a trillion this year. That's a problem. That's a big problem. I want to just talk about common sense for a moment. Pure, unadulterated common sense. Even if you're a liberal. Okay, you know, we all agree that if you're a family, now there's needs and there's needs. You might have certain needs that, hey, it would be nice if I had this, it would be more convenient. But, you know, I could go without it. That, that, that's how we run our family, and I'm sure that's how you run your household budget. My wife and I don't even get Amazon Prime. You know, everyone's big into that now, except when they run their little specials. But in general, for the whole year, I never get it. Yeah, we don't, we don't really need it. So I'm not going to spend the extra hundred or so dollars on it. Be nice to have it, but I don't need it. There's a lot of things in life that are like that. Thank God. In our family, I don't have a penny of debt. Okay, not not a penny of debt. I've never not paid my credit card. Um, and I'm sure, particularly in this audience, that's going to be true with a lot of you. And I'm thankful for that. But even without a penny of debt, not a single annual deficit, not a single cumulative debt, I'm careful. Okay, so. You know, recently I've had I've had to buy more clothes than ever in my life. I never, you know, usually cared about that, but I'm doing more on camera stuff. So I figured, all right, I gotta update things. And you know, it's like, you know, all things equal, it'd be nice to buy this, but you know, I, I just don't do it. I get away with, you know, as little spending as I can. That's what we do. It's not that you can't find any utility to certain things, but are they indispensable? I think most of us that would kind of, you know, call ourselves somewhere in the realm of middle income, give or take, you know, we're not wealthy in particular, we're all going to act like that. People, even people that are wealthy don't like to waste money, some of them, depending on who you are. But, but certainly if you're in a middle income where you can't really afford to, you know, you could afford to maybe waste a little bit, but not a lot, you know, you're going to be careful, even if you don't have any debt. Here's what I don't understand. We've had three and a half weeks so far of this partial shutdown. Okay, and that has included agencies that entire departments that are as nebulous as HUD and the Department of Commerce, parts of Department of Interior, parts of Treasury we don't need, parts of agriculture we don't need. And remember, as we've said a number of times the last couple of weeks, you have to Keep in mind that the more domestic you get, housing, education, commerce, even most of agriculture, we already have 50 state governments. We have 3,000 county governments and roughly 90,000 forms of local or municipality governments. So things that are local in nature, you, you don't need a federal government. And we've had this debate for years, for decades, between the right and the left about the role of the federal government. And here, suddenly we have three and a half weeks where we're fighting over immigration, which I think is a good thing. But we can't lose sight of the other narrative here. We just went three and a half weeks with this stuff completely closed. And the only discussion we're having, notice the media, the virtue signaling they're doing is, over the, the pay of the workers. And look, I get it. I understand. You, you signed up for the job. And now, you know, for the first time this past week, you're missing your first check. I get it. I feel bad for you. But our job in public policy is not to look at the federal government as an employment agency. We, I, I think, again, and I think you'd all agree, some of you who are more liberal would say, no, I think this is more indispensable to the federal union. We need this as a people. We need this, not the jobs. We need the programs, the functionality of, of the government agencies that are being furloughed. And as conservatives, we would argue we don't need them. But I think 
all of us would agree or should agree that you know you, you can't just keep federal government flowing from taxpayer funding and debt simply because oh um, uh, these people need jobs right i mean that that's that's really dumb certainly if you're facing a debt crisis you can't afford that if the only thing you're going to miss is the federal pay that's a problem We need to have a discussion about that. How much more so that we have $22 trillion in debt? We're facing $1 to $2 trillion deficits every year indefinitely now with no end in sight. Meaning unlike the first time, it was just a recession that caused it, but then we went back a little bit to to, $600, $700 billion deficits. This is here indefinitely unless there's a policy change. No one disagrees with that. On interest payments on the debt alone, we are flushing several hundred billion dollars, but that's because of the interest rate increase, is set to rapidly explode in the coming years, so much so that in 2020, we are going to surpass uh, interest payments just on the debt. That, That is money thrown in the garbage. Right, so you might think these programs and food stamps and, and government healthcare programs are useful. I think they're harming the market. But fine, in your mind, there's some use to it. Again, I'm, I'm trying to speak in a nonpartisan way for this point. But certainly, nobody could argue that it's a good thing to, to be literally throwing money in the garbage just on interest payments on the debt. It's going to be more than the cost of Medicaid in 2020. By 2023, it's going to surpass the discretionary cost of the military. In about a decade, and this is right now, this is right now, with every year, the projections uh, blowing out the previous years and going up, we're going to reach about a trillion dollars, meaning in, by 2028, just the payment on the debt is going to be a trillion dollars a year. That's going to be about a sixth of our budget. Okay, of our annual budget, a sixth of it. You know, right away, r- right now, that's about what um what military spending is. You know, you figure, all right, a sixth of your of your budget you spend on the military. That's a core function of the federal government, one of the most important functions. <laughs> Imagine a sixth of it. Think think about that. Let that seep in your brain. A sixth of our annual budget. Expenditures will be thrown into the garbage. Interest payments on the debt. Now, we all have to realize that we need to have a discussion about this. And it amazes me how we could blow through through this period of time when everyone's like, oh, like, you know, what's the big deal? And, you know, they're all talking about the record duration of the shutdown. But really, part of why it's a record duration is because it wasn't the whole thing. Now, obviously, look, you know, it's, it's a shame that you have, you know, people aren't being paid for the vital functions, the ones that are showing up to work and have to work. But, you know, that doesn't shut down. Coast Guard, Border Patrol, ICE, DEA, FBI, U.S. attorneys, that's not, that's not shutting down. But when you look at an at a department like HUD, okay, let, let, let's ju- let's just look at HUD for a minute. Ninety five point six percent, or ninety five point four percent, I think, are considered non essential. I don't know what the other four percent are, <laughs> but ninety five point four percent are non essential. So that means HUD has essentially been shut down, right? Justice and DHS have not. Most of it. But um, HUD has been shut down. 86% of the Commerce Department. Now, again, I, I understand how you could say, well, Daniel, that just means it's non-essential. You know, for it's not an emergency. We have to have it temporarily, but in the long run, you need. But, okay, if the entire agency is like that, you can't tell me. I understand that, you know, 
if you have, for example, Justice Department where 85% are essential, so you can tell me, well, Dan, you, you really do need much of the other 15% to make it function. It's just, you know, with a temporary funding lapse, you could do without them. I understand it. But if 95% of the department itself is non essential, and we have a debt crisis of this magnitude, and we went through a three and a half week shutdown where the only concern is, oh, the actual workers aren't going to get their pay, but not the fact that, oh, they're not doing the work. We missed these vital programs and work. This is something we have to have a discussion about. What about HUD? Even if you're a liberal and you believe in government distorting the housing market and getting involved, that, that's very local in nature. Why can't the 50 state governments and, the, and the, all the thousands of, of county and municipality governments take care of that? They already are. The same thing is true of the Department of Education. But, um, you know, obviously we haven't uh, – that was already funded, so it didn't shut down. But it would have been the same thing if the Department of Education would not have happened to have gotten you know the, the appropriation bill passed. Same thing for the Department of Labor. Why do we need this? Okay, I understand the statistics that they put out are cute and they're nice. But the private sector can and does do that. Do, are we really going to die without that? I mean, I, I, I could think of a lot of nice things I would want. When I say nice, I don't mean like luxuries, but you know, we we it would be useful to our lives. But you know, as a family, we we do without them because we maybe I could afford them now. But you know, you got to save up money for the rainy days. I got private school tuitions, and things do go wrong. You got to save up money when you have it. And I'm sure all of you do the same thing, whether you're liberal or conserv or conservative. That's what everyone has to do. Yet we spend $71.4 billion on the Department of Education every year. $42.6 billion on HUD. Why? Why is this untouchable? Why is this considered so untouchable? That's the question I don't want to answer. And this makes a difference, folks. CBO has estimated... That the interest payments on the debt, on average, cost the American worker $6,000 in, in less income a year. People forget that. I said, I said this a number of times. The debt is not some futuristic problem. Yeah, no one cares about the future. It's now. It's, it's sucking out resources now. It's diverting and distorting the market now. It's crowding out private investment now. It's a vicious cycle. The more desperate government is to service debt, the more to attract investors, they need to raise interest rates. And the more they raise interest rates, the more debt we have to we accrue because now we spend even more paying off the debt, which attracts even more people away from private investment investing in this. Imagine you know you have amazing factories, R&D, electronics, technology, and you're taking that away, but like, hey, this is safe. Government badly needs it. They're paying, you know, interest rates are going to go four, five, six percent eventually. Hey, you know, I'll keep my money here. Imagine what that does to an economy. I'm not even making a conservative argument here. This is just this is anyone. You can't have this debt go on like this. So at least go for the low hanging fruit. I'm not even talking about welfare, and these ridiculous healthcare programs that are actually harming people. You need to be on the programs because we have them giving a monopoly to the cartel. According to CBO, for every dollar increase in deficits, that reduces private domestic income by somewhere between 50 to 50 cents on the dollar and increases foreign holdings in American assets by another 20, 25 cents. That's the outsourcing, baby. That's China owning us. But we won't have a discussion. It just, it just drives me nuts. We're like, do you realize, Daniel, the people that will, they won't be able to pay their mortgages, they're going to go without paying. God bless them, but <laughs> you, you should be coming up with stories how we're going to die because we don't have these federal agencies functioning. But no, all you could say is that the workers won't get paid. 
But if that's the only reason we have it, then we do have a debt crisis. That's a bigger deal. Which brings me to the final point on this issue before we move on to the courts. And that is, on Friday, the House of Representatives, without with very little debate, voted on a bill to give back pay for government workers, including those that were furloughed and not, not even working. Now, in the 30 or so shutdowns we've had in our history, every time Congress has ultimately done this, it's become such a radioactive political football that you know, no one's going to be caught dead not doing it, so they, you know, they always do it. But the problem with this iteration of, of, of the federal pay bill was that they did it permanently. They preemptively, if this would be signed into law, it would change federal law that preemptively there's a baked-in entitlement for federal workers, even the ones not working, to get paid when there's a funding lapse. If you think about that, what that means is that you're essentially transitioning discretionary federal pay of the bureaucrats to mandatory spending, which is not subject to the annual budget appropriations process. Therefore, if there's appropriations lapse, right, it's going to be the same way, you know, Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, food stamps, it doesn't stop because when there's a government shutdown, because it's not part of the government shutdown means that you don't, you fail to pass the appropriation bills or some or all of them. Think about it. We already have 66 to 70% of our spending in a given year walled off. That, that's done, or you can't touch it unless you would downright pass a new statute. So, you know, a lack of a, a fight over spending is not going to affect that. This is going to take the entire federal worker pay off the budget process. That's how irresponsible it is. And, and, and by the way, if your whole goal is to stop government shutdowns, which I think many of us in the audience don't even believe that that's a laudatory goal to pursue because you know you, you sometimes you need that leverage i mean that's not you know the important thing is to have good government not you know oh we have a funding lapse oh it's a big deal it's not such a big deal and again already it's built into statute that even when you have a government shutdown the essential workers go to work so it's not that bad but, at least, but I'm saying if that is your goal, so at least once you're writing a statute to essentially take away that leverage, put in the statute that everyone has to go to work. So basically, there's no such thing as government shutdown. It's just that it will be delayed, and once it's over, you'll automatically get paid back. But no, under this bill, if it would become law, you'd have the worst of both worlds, be, worlds because still, the non-essential workers would still be furloughed, but automatically guaranteed pay. That makes no sense. I mean, if anything, it's going to incentivize more shutdowns because it takes away the pain and the leverage. But still, you wouldn't have them working. It's just dumb. It was drafted poorly. But only seven Republicans voted against it. Seven out of 190 or so House Republicans. Because they were scared. They didn't want to be accused of not paying federal workers. But you got to stand up and tell the truth. It's like, no, this is not for this iteration. This is in perpetuity, making it mandatory spending. Seven war. Um, I don't have it in front of me. Hopefully, I'll remember. Amash, Massey, Chip Roy, of course, Andy Biggs, Ted Yoho, Grothman from uh, um, Wisconsin, and Gosar. Gosar from Arizona, of course. Now, there's some other good members there. I'm, they were just kind of scared, but you know, that's very scary. Which is why when we're done this border fight, hopefully successfully, come late spring, we need a national discussion on the debt ceiling because that will be the last point of the leverage we have because this debt business is a major problem. But not only is it a problem, we now see that there's a major solution. Some of these bureaucracies, without even cutting the mandatory programs that we don't believe in and that distort the markets, at least look at that. Look at the low-hanging fruit. Look at the improper payments. We always talk about it, but never do anything about it. Just that alone is worth, um, trying to remember, it's $140 billion a year in improper payments. Something like that, about $140 billion according to GAO in 2017. 
And that number grows every year. Improper payments, $140 billion. Could we deal with that? Just the improper payments? You know, it's funny. In order to get around reorienting the mission of the federal government and actually doing what it takes, the always the the, the, the big um, talking point is, oh, we're going to go after waste, fraud, and abuse. That, that's the cop-out. But we don't even do that. I mean, at least do that. At least do the cop-out. Can't spare $5.7 billion for the border, but $141 billion in improper payments. And by the way, that means literally improper. It doesn't mean like I would argue the $130 billion for Afghanistan every year is one big improper payment. But it, it means just the total waste and fraud. So that's that. Now we need to move on to the courts. There's been a lot of insane court rulings and insane disregard by the Supreme Court for what the lower courts are doing. I can't even remember it all, but we're going to discuss some recent things. So here's the problem. By conservative media and conservative think tanks obsessing for so many years about the nature of the picks for the courts, particularly the Supreme Court, they have, more than anyone else, been responsible for raising the specter of the importance of the courts. I said this all the time. Imagine if Pelosi and McConnell would get together and create a legislative army. We'd just start directing troops around the world as if they were the commander-in-chief, the president, but they totally sacked the president's power. And then it comes time to pick the secretary of the army or the army chief of staff position for that legislative army. And conservatives are like, we got to get a good guy in that position. Well, no, I mean, Rather than expending your political capital on the wrong thing, but which also further fuels the specter of the importance erroneously of that position, you need to use your political capital to challenge the premise that that is indeed a position. So you have the courts engaging in insanity. You know, every other branch, the president, we're going to get this in a minute, president threatens to, in their minds, usurp power and declare an emergency when it's a clear statute. They just don't like it. Like, oh my gosh, he's abusing power. But a court could literally sack immigration law. And it's like, rather than being outraged, like, this is illegitimate. We cannot follow this. This is unconstitutional. They actually legitimize it by saying, yeah, uh, President Trump needs to pick uh, strategies that will concur with what the courts will agree with. Well, what? But, but what do you mean? So I say this because we're on the cusp of this debate. I mean, I have no more intel than you guys do about what's going to happen with Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, as she recovers from that lung surgery, what the deal is with her. But obviously, it's raising a lot of speculation that she will finally retire in some form and you know, there's going to be a vacancy. And then everyone's be like, oh my gosh, now come on, Daniel, there's going to be an outright majority. You can't deny that. An outright conservative majority on the Supreme Court. I'm here to tell you it's not making a difference because the Democrats have already created a game of heads they win, tails they win. And I'm going to explain this in a few examples. So when you get a good Supreme Court ruling, they just don't follow it in the lower courts. When we get a bad one, conservatives legitimize it. So it's the lowest common denominator with the lower courts now. It doesn't matter. Between the margins. Yeah, if you put a gun to my head uh, and pick, I'd rather have the seat than not have it. But I'm just saying, the more we invest in it, the more we raise the specter of its illegitimate power. But before we get to some of the stuff going on in the courts, I do want to discuss another collateral damage of this phony conservative media idolatry of the courts. This is an art article from MorningConsult.com. It's a Morning Consult poll. It's a, it's a type of poll. Key players in Kavanaugh confirmation fight reap benefits from base. They polled Susan Collins, Lindsey Graham, and Mitch McConnell in terms of their favorability among Republican voters, among their party base voters. And 
it is truly, truly remarkable if you look at what's going on. Okay? You're not going to believe it. Conservative media is worthless. Okay? No effectiveness on, on pushing for any vision, any policy, any primary challenge, nothing. I've got nothing out of them. But boy, oh boy, when they're off message, boy, are they successful. So Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, and Susan Collins were all vaunted as these big heroes of the Kavanaugh confirmation. And as we noted at the time, first of all, we already saw Kavanaugh, couple cases, doesn't want to bring up Grant Cert to reverse bed lower court decisions. So we were kind of right by saying he's not exactly what you think he is. I'm not saying he's bad, but it's not enough to be a Thomas that it's going to make that much of a difference. Number two, it was coming from a bad place because they only fight hard on judicial noms in order to bail them out from fighting on anything else and in order to avoid primary challenges. So it's like, okay, guys, guys, I'm going to fool you. I'm about to go and pull the wool over your eyes so you won't primary challenge me. And then the conservative media is like, yeah, yeah, you're awesome. You're awesome. Mission accomplished. According to the Morning Consult poll, they they looked at the polling from the third quarter of 2018 to the fourth quarter. So that's, you know, like going from the summer basically to the fall. That's when you had the Kavanaugh fight. It's remarkable. Lindsey Graham's net approval among Republicans went up by 43 points. Collins went up by 46 and McConnell by 16. Now, let's put Susan Collins aside. I don't think, given the politics of the state, anyone's looking at a primary challenge to her. She is what she is. But Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell from South Carolina and and Kentucky, really? And then they screwed us on Khashoggi and jailbreak. And, And Lindsey is working overtime on amnesty. They haven't changed one bit. They're worse than ever. McConnell's as feckless as as ever. Really? So it's all worth it. The one kind, uh, the one success that this conservative media has succeeded in in uh, forging. Not a single primary challenge we've had successful because of them. Their one thing is to elevate the stature of these rhinos just enough that they're just popular enough to avoid a primary challenge, but not in a way that's going to change meaningfully as a matter of policy. All because of the Supreme Court. I wanted to start off with that. Because I wanted you guys to have some sort of a picture of if you're going to put all your basket in changing the courts, well, and, and thereby screw us on every other issue, and thereby obviate our ability to launch a primary challenge, it better be really worthwhile. But no, the courts are worse than ever. Just last night, you guys saw, if you haven't seen it, we'll link to it, political article. Um, there's a lot of others, but this is the one I have in front of me. Judge freezes Trump administration's contraception rule. Federal judge in California blocked the Trump administration rule on contraception just hours before it was to go into effect Monday. It would have allowed virtually any employer to refuse cover to cover workers' birth control by citing religious or moral objections. This is U.S. District Judge Haywood Gilliam. Um, He ruled the policy would cause harm to Democratic states suing over the rules. And he blocked it in 13 states plus the District of Columbia. Those were a party to the lawsuit. Um, Let's see how to say this. Now, first of all, this Gilliam guy, he was an Obama appointee. But some of you might be wondering, didn't we have a Supreme Court opinion on this a few years ago. Didn't we have what's called Hobby Lobby that said this was one of the few big victories we had was Hobby Lobby, meaning one of the few examples of where we were able to use the courts to knock down their stuff, a Democrat president, was in Hobby Lobby where they said, you know, it's a private company doesn't have to cover abortifacients in their 
you know, healthcare reimbursement package of whatever it is, insurance benefits or whatever. Okay. Now, this is really the second judge to do this or third judge to do this in some way. There was a judge in uh, Philadelphia, um, Wendy Beetlestone, who who did this uh, in 2017. The Ninth Circuit already did this in some capacity. I, I haven't studied the nuances of the different cases. And then, of course, there was an Iowa federal judge that said the opposite, that said Obama's contraception mandate was unconstitutional. Because basically what Obama did is he did an end run around – um, around the Hobby Lobby ruling, and he just basically said, all right, so we'll outsource it to a third party. You won't directly cover it. And and what they do is, and, and the point is, but you know, if you're a company, you're still enabling it. It doesn't matter if you make it a step removed. I don't want to have my revenue from my corporation that I privately own to go towards enabling abortion funding. Right? I mean, the, the rationale still applies. But... You know, that's what Obama did, and Trump merely got rid of it, and that's it. You know, there, there's no adjectives in the English language to describe the level of insanity from the courts. The courts are now saying that states have no right to regulate abortion or election integrity laws without federal interference for their purposes. Yet these same courts are saying that states can get standing to sue the feds to mandate free contraception upon employers. Think about that. The courts rule that citizens can't get standing when states refuse to enforce immigration laws and harm communities with poverty and violence. Yet somehow the lack of free birth control is going to cause serious and irreparable harm. I have a right to force employers to give me free contraception when it doesn't even cost that much money. Okay? What is it? Between $20 and $30 for a three-month pack? Birth control? That's less than the cost of three months' worth of my Sudafed supply that I often need uh, before I do radio. That's ridiculous. But again, you know, you see this thing with conflicting district judges, which is stupid, which is just shows that even if you believe in Supreme Court making policy, you at least don't have the lower courts make policy. But there's a broader theme that we see from here is that once again, even the rare conservative victories you get at the Supreme Court are fleeting and hollow. We're seeing this with Heller with guns. We're seeing this with Hobby Lobby on religious liberty. And we're seeing this, obviously, with Trump v. Hawaii and all the immigration cases. It just doesn't matter. So this is my point. A lot of people are like, come on, Daniel. I mean, this is going to be a six to three conservative majority on the Supreme Court. I mean, we've dreamt about this for three generations. Yeah, and so what? They, they, They barely ever bring up the, try to overturn the lower bed lower court decisions. Few cases where they do. Here's what's starting to happen. Here's what's starting to happen. I think I think this is an important way and and bookmark this minute of this podcast because I want you guys to remember this when you debate with your friends about how to fix the judiciary and the and the extent and severity of the judicial emergency. And yes, it is a judicial emergency because nothing matters if we believe we only have one branch of government that stands atop the food chain and not just the Supreme Court, but any random lower court. And that is this. We're getting the worst mix of the judiciary being viewed as an adjudicative body for cases and controversies and the view that that it's a legislature. In other words, ironically, liberals rightfully for when it's good for them, view the courts as just rendering an opinion in a specific case. So what happens is when, whenever the Supreme Court renders a so-called, let's say, conservative opinion that portends a conservative political outcome, they'll just limit it to that particular case, and they'll come back and implement their policies 50 other ways, but that's slightly different than the case that was before the Supreme Court. 
and they'll have the lower courts directly violate the rationale behind the Supreme Court, but they can hide behind the fact, well, it's a different case, and it's a cat-and-mouse game. You have to wait until the Supreme Court's willing to take it up again, and conservative justices are much less aggressive in policing the lower courts when they seem to brush up against Supreme Court conservative precedent versus the liberal justices, and I'm going to get that in a minute. And we get left with the policies we are. We are. But, but you know, whereas the conservatives, when, when you get liberal Supreme Court rulings, they're like, what could we do? Marriage is redefined. We don't have borders anymore. Oh, well. And done. Like, gone. So much so that we that it preempts policies. It's starting to happen in a number of states where Republicans have super majorities in legislatures plus the governorship. They won't even pursue certain abortion policies because they know they're going to lose in court. The courts loom so large. The lower courts, even when they violate Supreme Court precedent that they won't even, you know, court, courts can't even, the states can't even defund Planned Parenthood. There's a right for a private organization to have abortion funding, taxpayer funding, because they know the lower courts will screw with them. And now Kavanaugh, among others, will refuse to bring up the case in the Supreme Court. So this is the lesson of what happened when you see, oh, they put put a religious liberty on hold uh, with the contraception mandate. Ask yourself, whatever happened to the Hobby Lobby opinion, just like we're seeing with guns and just like we're seeing with um, immigration. This is the problem. And yet now conservatives are saying, how dare Trump use a statute that he has, whether you agree with it or not, the courts will strike it down, Daniel. You can't tell me they won't. You know, someone was subtweeting me and like, you know, he didn't mention me by name, but he was clearly referring to me. Was saying, oh, these same guys say they shouldn't get standing. They know they're going to get standing. No, it's not what I said. I said they shouldn't, meaning based on the rules of construction, but they'll do it anyway. So instead of conservatives saying this is illegitimate, you courts, we're putting you on notice. Just like we're going to put Trump on notice when, when we don't want him to violate executive power. We're going to put you on notice not to violate judicial power. No, they legitimize it. They're like, well, the, look, the courts will just grant standing and the courts are going to, you know, they're, they're going to rule against Trump. So therefore, you shouldn't do it. What? We now codify their illegitimacy as legitimate as a crudgel over the states and the other branches? That's what the conservative media is doing now. Levin and I are the only ones standing on this issue. But that's the thing. Like, oh my gosh, we got to get our guys in there. Oh my gosh, the courts matter. Oh my gosh, all of them are judicial supremacists. Well, Trump, you have no choice. The courts, the courts. No, use that capital to fight back against the courts and say no. You don't have, (laughs) meaning rather than fighting Trump, fight the courts. Look, where he's wrong, he's wrong. He's clearly wrong. The only time I think he's wrong in executive power is to regulate bump stocks like machine guns. That's clearly, if you read statute, that's clearly very difficult to read that in. How much do you want to bet (laughs) gun owners of America will lose in that court case? (laughs) The one case where Trump actually violates his power, they'll uphold it because it's all outcomes-based. But this is what they don't realize. This is what's happening. Let me um let me give you another example. Guns. So as you guys know that lower courts have repealed Heller <laughs> and one after another in like 15 different decisions on mag capacity bans, weapons bans, um right to carry bans, uh all these lower courts, you know, from DC to the ninth to the seventh, the second, third, fourth. Um, probably missing some depending on the cases. All these bans, especially in the blue states, they're all being upheld. And every time the gun rights groups try to uh, appeal the ruling, the courts won't take it up. You know, at the very least, Roberts won't do it. So... Here's the deal. That's bad enough, right? You know, so you're seeing that even the once in a generation victories we get in the Supreme Court are ultimately fleeting. 
you guys are going to be pretty pissed off after this, but I'm going to tell, tell this to you anyway. There was a case last week. So by the way, a whole bunch of cases the courts have refused to take up. Now, it, some of these, it, there's two things. There's when they officially deny it, cert denied, and then there's when they just fail to act on it. So they don't grant cert, but they don't explicitly say they're not. So a lot of these cases, they just haven't. Now, maybe they still could, but a number of cases where we're getting screwed in the lower courts. Do you know, to this day, could, could you imagine? It's been months, year over year, where the lower court said, DACA, Obama's illegal amnesty, the most illegal thing a president ever did, is the law of the land. You would think the Supreme Court would grab that expeditiously, even you know the emergency appeal without the circuit level. But they said, no, 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 go through the circuit. Okay, it went through the circuit. They haven't t- taken it up. When this is an emergency, because... These people are permanently being embedded to our society based on a presidential edict that they know violates statute. You have Indiana's abortion law, where where um, and look, you know this was um, this is the Seventh Circuit, which is not even one of the worst ones. Ruled that Indiana cannot bar sex and race selective abortions. Okay. That was their law. You know, there's one thing to say, okay, Roe v. Wade is, is a settled precedent, but they can't merely don't have they don't have a state interest in merely just barring sex selection like they do in China. That's all it was. The court said he can't do it. Supreme Court has refused. So there's a pattern when the lower courts are giving radical bad opinions that that really make a quantum leap in terms of rules of standing. Rules of injury, um, and, and the merits violating constitution, statute, case law. Supreme Court won't take it up. Meaning, so when you don't take up a bad case, you are allowing the lower courts to make bad law, because that's what it's doing nowadays. It's law. It's. I mean, it's not. You and I both know it's not. But the way our body politic treats it, it's like law. It's not just you know a case or a controversy that is binding, and, and the government's treated that that is the policy now. Even when there's irreparable harm, we literally have. I mean, could you imagine the cascading effects of hundreds of thousands of of illegals coming, and the the empowerment of the cartels, the national security, the drugs, the fiscal charge based on temporary policies put into place by lower courts that the Supreme Court knows is bad, yet they won't act on them. They won't act on them. Last week, I believe on Thursday, in comes the Supreme Court and acts on a gun case. They actually granted cert on a gun case, except it's not the type of gun case you might think. This is an 11th Circuit ruling, a good ruling that should be left to stand. It was actually by um, Judge Pryor, you know, was one of them. And I believe it was unanimous. It was three to nothing. On illegal alien, an illegal alien owning guns. Now, no, they're not. It's not about whether he has a right to own a gun. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but still, it's basically there was this guy, Mohammed Al-Rahif, a citizen of United Arab Emirates that we brought in on an F-1 student visa, and that's a whole other story in itself that we bring in roughly 150, 160,000 Muslims every year on student visas every single year. He was caught with um, with a bunch of ammo and and guns. And it's a violation of a federal law. They were trying to assert in court that somehow, somehow, he had to have advanced notice that he became illegal, right? Because he wasn't illegal in the sense that he came here illegally. He was in a visa overstay illegal. So you're not considered until you have to have an adjudication. So he's not considered an illegal. So he didn't um, violate one of the, I forget the statute. It's in the 922s. 922 is all the illegal felony possession of, of firearms. 
So he didn't violate it because he wasn't illegal, because it wasn't adjudicated. Again, crazy stuff. It's not true. It's when we, pursuant to our laws that Congress made clear, when that time is up, you are an illegal. Okay? Certainly for these purposes. And yet the district judge said that's nonsense. He threw it out. 11th Circuit, three to nothing, upheld it. That ruling, suddenly the Supreme Court agrees to take it up. So American citizens, when they have their gun rights stripped from them, and the lower courts strip it, Supreme Court, despite their own ruling, doesn't take it up. But when you have good lower court rulings, just dismissing frivolous, illegal alien lawsuits to overturn felony gun convictions, suddenly then they're going to take it up. Now, you might say, well, Daniel, it doesn't necessarily mean Roberts or Kevin or Gorsuch or any of these guys are doing bad. It only takes four to take up a case. So it could mean they're all good and they're all going to rule the right way ultimately. But, you know, it's just the four liberals and locksteps. There's nothing you can do about that. But Daniel, you know, this is something that if you had a six vote and you only have three liberals, maybe they wouldn't have brought up. That could be true. It's very likely that that's true. But you're missing the point. That there's an imbalance between the right and the left. The left will fight tooth and nail in the judiciary. So if there's something they don't like in the lower courts, they'll all agree to take it up. I don't know that Roberts agreed to take up to overturn a good lower court ruling. I probably, I, I would tend to doubt it. But he's not as aggressive to overturn bad lower court decisions from a conservative perspective, obviously, the way the liberals are aggressive to overturn the lower court decisions. And that's the imbalance here. And remember, the Supreme Court has limited time. They've been only taking up, out of the tens of thousands of, of decisions of lower courts, roughly, you know, it used to be like 80 to 100. Now they're down to 60, the lowest ever, every term. So the more the liberals succeed in bringing up stupid frivolous cases, the less they're going to ha- want to have time And the more Roberts is going to be inclined, assuming it's not political calculations, sometimes it'll be, you know, just time, time and resources calculations. He's not going to take up appeals from our side to try to overturn bad lower court decisions. So again, this is the long, deep discussion that doesn't fit on a bumper sticker that you're not going to hear. You're not going to hear in the conservative media. They're just going to cheerlead. Appoint better judges. Lindsey Graham is awesome. Yeah, lovely. I want to read to you another case. The same people that think Trump is violating power by threatening the emergency powers when they know darn well that there's legitimate political arguments not to like the use of that power, but the power is there legally nonetheless. I never hear conservatives outraged. Oh my gosh, Uh, courts are declaring martial law. No, they, they, they won't do that. Let me read to you a Washington Post story. Federal This is from January 10th. Federal judge criticizes prosecutors over increase in immigration cases. A federal judge has spoken out against the sharp increase in Northern Virginia in the prosecution of immigrants who reenter the country after deportation. I hope this is not the start of a pattern for this year, Judge Leone M. Uh, Brinkima said in Alexandria Federal Court last week, noting that there were six such cases scheduled for the first Friday in January. I think this is not the best use of judicial or Justice Department resources to keep seeing these types of cases. She added that she would like the message to be relayed to Zachary Turlinger, the U.S. Attorney of the Eastern District of Virginia. The defendant before that morning, Ramon Adrian Ocheo Paz, ended up in federal court after serving time in Prince William County for aggravated sexual battery of a child, a felony. But in federal court, his only alleged crime was coming back into the country after being deported. And he is something of an outlier. In the majority of the 224 cases of a felony reentry after deportation that were filed in the Eastern District last year, initial arrests involved misdemeanor offenses and most commonly drunk, drunk driving. See, again, the reason, I say this all the time, the reason why they're going to go after you in our federal criminal justice system is usually because you're doing other things wrong. Otherwise, they'll just deport you or they'll just ignore and let you off the hook and allow you to be here illegally. Right? 
And this is also why I say that, you know, when you want to quantify how much criminality is from illegal aliens, it's very important to recognize when you see statistics like 38.6% of those in U.S. Marshals custody are, are foreign nationals, 41% or so roughly every year of federal cases involve non-citizens. That's important because you might say, well, yeah, of course, because it's all immigration. It's redundant. It's not that they you know, commit other crimes is that they're here illegally. So that's that's a federal crime, immigration. It's in the federal system. No, because most of the time we're either give them amnesty or we deport them. So you're going to be in ISIS custody. You're not going to be in DOJ in the U.S. Marshals awaiting trial on federal. You know, they're not going to go after you unless usually it's because you committed other other crimes sometimes again because it's so hard to prove a lot of this stuff so they'll just hit you up on immigration charges where they know you're a danger and they want to lock you up but could you imagine a federal judge saying how dare you bring these cases look if, if the law if you don't agree that the law locks them up should dictate that they get convicted so rule that way but the law is clear on immigration obviously it's like what is this with these illegal reentries? I don't think that's the best who, who are you I can't believe this. I mean, she, she, I, th- I think like something like this, she should be censured. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Oh, by the way, it's a he. Sorry, <laughs> I thought it was a she. You know. Here, Turlinger declined to comment, but in recent months he has been highlighting cases in which defendants have repeatedly come into the country illegally and committed other crimes while here. They included a Salvadoran man who was arrested for his fifth drunken driving offense and who already had a felony reentry conviction, a Mexican man with a sexual assault and drug record who had previously been deported. Quote, we are committed to criminal immigration enforcement and will continue to prioritize these cases, the U.S. attorney wrote in a news release. I just don't get it. If anything, this proves our point. This proves our point that there's such a criminal alien crisis with sexual assaults, drug trafficking, and DUIs. <laughs> meaning, the, the, this judge, meaning the, if the judge wants to get into political advocacy, which he clearly is, so then advocate to secure the border and to take away the magnets. I always say you want to you want to unclog the federal criminal justice system. You you end all the magnets for illegal immigration. Believe me, you'll see how much this will go down. And and like I've said a hundred times, this is how it ties into the so-called criminal justice reform business. That's the story. And then, then they say, although the Salvadoran, you know, this is the Washington Post here, although the Salvadoran gang MS-13 is a serious problem in Northern Virginia, and many of the undocumented ing- immigrants are from that country, only four of the 224 defendants prosecuted last year on a reentry charge have been alleged in public court filings to have ties to the gang. So what? This is just unbelievably, uh, unbelievable what's going on here. One public defender complained this quote here, this Jeremy Kamins, the court prosecutors and defense lawyers spend considerable time and resources, particularly to hire interpreters on illegal reentry cases. Yet these defendants almost all face, in addition to prosecution, detention, ICE custody, and deportation. Yeah, so stop incentivizing it. Unbelievable. But anyway, you see what's happening here. These judges are now sympathetic to illegal alien sex offenders and drunk drivers. And they're saying, why are you bring these cases before me? Who are you? Imagine that. A judges are, you know, this is not like an order. It's just giving like an outside political comment to send the message to DOJ officials that you need to stop following the law. I mean, this guy should be impeached. Unreal. So that's the story here with the judges, that they're worse than ever. They're openly violating the law in any way than you could think the president would do. And conservative media is silent. And in fact, not only are they silent, they're fueling this this judicial 
bubble of the importance of the judiciary and now everything they say is the law of the land and now we have to get our guys in so much so that if a rhino screws us on every other issue but they vote for our judicial picks picks which usually are less than perfect then somehow it's worth re-electing them. That, folks, is how broken the phony conservative media is in this country. Anyway, there's so much more going on. Obviously, I have my article out today on three reasons why the whole argument of, well, they come in at the points of entry, you know, that the drugs come in at the points of entry, on why that's bogus. It's a long article out today. I'll link that in show notes. Um, we didn't get to as much immigration, but I figured, you know, there were a lot of other things I wanted to get to today, and I'm glad we cleared the decks with that. You know, Trump is out there. Look, he's holding strong on this, but he's promoting H-1B visas, and he he mentioned something about DACA again. Jeez, why can he ever get off of that? But um, but that that's where we are. And then again, to reiterate, the Supreme Court refuses to take up gun rights cases for peaceful Americans when lower courts are wrong but they grant cert to a criminal alien gun case when the lower court was absolutely right. That is how broken our judiciary is. A lot more going on. We're going to try to have more guests on the show this week in law enforcement. Still trying to line them up. Thanks so much for listening. God bless y'all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.